Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. One thing we want to be mindful of as we make our way through this season about protest and the criminalization of it and all of the conversations swirling around both of those things is that one of the reasons that so many people and companies and think tanks and other organizations have worked really hard to generate so much conversation about protest tactics and who's radical and who isn't is to distract from what's actually going on when it comes to climate change. Today, we're bringing you an episode from our sister podcast, Inherited, that digs into what is actually happening on the ground in a place that's being deeply impacted by climate change and also happens to be the largest oil producer on the continent of Africa, Nigeria. This episode is called Loss is on the Calendar. And in it, storyteller Mo Isu traces the repetitive cycle of loss and rebuilding in the rural Niger Delta region of Nigeria as the country weathers extreme seasonal flooding. After meeting a flood survivor in his hometown of Lagos, Mo travels 12 hours to Lokoja, the town where Nigeria's largest rivers converge, to explore how directly impacted flood survivors endure the region's relentless cycle of damage and repair. We'll have an episode coming in the next few months about what climate protest looks like in Nigeria and the history of climate protest there over the past few decades especially as we head into an international climate summit where conversations are very much swirling around whether fossil fuel development is the answer to all of Africa's problems or not. It's important to remember that yes, energy poverty is a problem and also that the continent of Africa is likely to experience some of the worst impacts of climate change and that poor people there will be impacted hardest. A solution that ignores either of those things is no solution. With that, enjoy this story from Mo Isu in Nigeria. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install, you tap a button, and then you're protected. 
I like hardly even think about it anymore. And it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In Nigeria, there are two seasons, dry and wet. But due to the effects of anthropogenic climate change, many people of the Niger Delta region spend their summers displaced. The rivers that provide for them throughout the year, flooding at alarming rates. Hafade and welcome to Inherited. We share the work of young audio storytellers, hoping to uplift a new generation of climate advocacy. I'm your season host, Shailen Martos, and this is season three, episode three. Loss is on the calendar. Flooding in the Middle Belt and south of Nigeria has become the norm. The banks of the rivers Niger and Benue overrun each year, destroying homes and taking the lives of people whose livelihoods depend on their access to water. Mo Isu remembers the first major floods in 2012 and sees how the climate crisis directly affects the people along the rivers in Nigeria. 
Today, he shares the voices of people whose communities struggle to adapt to the destruction of each rainy season. Here's Mo Isu with Loss is on the Calendar. Here are two reasons why June is not like any other month. One, it marks the halfway point of the year. Two, perhaps more significantly, because of the rain. In the tropical climate of Nigeria, where there are two seasons, the dry and the wet, June kicks off the height of the wet season. If you get caught out in the rain without an umbrella in the middle of June, you cannot blame the weather forecast. Only yourself. Personally, I like the rain. I like watching the drops spatter against my windows. I like the cold breeze it brings, replacing the humidity. I like the certainty of it. Usually, we know when the rains are coming and we know how to prepare for them. Usually. In 2012, it felt like no one was prepared for the rainy season. I was 15 years old at the time, living with my family in the heart of Lagos. I remember this one week in July when the rains came and did not stop. It rained on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and was still raining when the next Monday came around. All the while, I watched from the safety of my house on the third floor of a three-story block of flats. I watched the pounding rain the blustering winds and the gushing stream of water flowed down the street. I was oblivious to the change that this particular rainy season was going to bring. It is a critical situation for Anambra East and West. Floods have taken over the entire human habitations and the people are left helpless as their homes and farmlands are completely washed away. In 2012, Nigeria saw its worst flooding in 40 years. The 15-year-old version of me that watched the rain from his window learned from the news what others lived through. The rain this year was more than they had bargained for. By the time June had come and gone, disaster had struck. Still, there was worse yet to come. And as floods continue to ravage parts of the country, even areas earlier believed to be safe are being overrun. In Delta State, 43 communities in Isoko South Communities in the Middle Belt and south of Nigeria were the worst hit. The rivers overran their banks, and poor drainage gave runoff from the downpour nowhere to go. And so the water found home in the places where people live. All houses disappeared, leaving only the top of their roofs. The situation is not better in Kogi State, yet. People unable to leave their homes and those who had gone outside the state before the wicked floods are now stranded. The floods have ravaged communities in Benue, Niger, Kogi, Edo and Kano states. Many lucky enough to be alive are now refugees in their own country. The flooding has also hit Adamawa and Taraba. Kano, Bauchi, Jigawa and Kaduna as well. The official death toll is around 140 so far, but aid agencies fear that will rise as disease takes hold. By the end of the year, 363 people had died. Seven million people 
in 32 of Nigeria's 36 states had been affected. 2.1 million of them were displaced from their homes. So I only read about flooding news. Like flood is not something that would ever assume would be something um, that uh, I, I never assumed flood would be something that would happen to me personally. In 2012, Victor Daniel was 18. His family moved to Lokoja two years earlier. Lokoja is a river ride and fishing community, the capital of Kogi State, and the town where Nigeria's two largest rivers converge. When the flooding started, Victor's father raised the first alarm. Victor was, at the time, in university in a different part of the state. When the rains came, his father called him, but he met that call with more skepticism than concern. I, I really didn't think it was that serious. Like, my father had a flip very dramatic. So when he said flood, I was like, ah, oh, this man has come again. So then I went, I traveled. He said, so he said, I should come home immediately. And so Victor did just that. He left his friends in school and got on a bus to Lukoja, where he expected to find his father overreacting to a little extra water. On the bus ride, it slowly dawned on Victor that his father might not be exaggerating. The road that led home ran parallel to the River Niger. What was usually a calm aquatic presence was suddenly not. The water had risen to ice they did not imagine it could reach. Where trees could be seen before, now there was only the whisper of them. Towns were half submerged underwater. Woods disappeared. The people on the bus with him started to cry. They had never seen the river like this before. The source of their livelihood was coming for their lives. When Victor got home, he joined his father in preparation for the worst. I was seeing the flood was growing closer. Canoes in the street next to mine. Mm. Like this used to be pure land, tad road. And all of, all of a sudden, the mode of transportation changed from Keke to Kinos. The two of them, father and son, did a sort of recon mission, visiting the neighboring streets to see how much of a danger there was. In Victor's mind, it did not seem like much. Yes, there was a flood. The river had breached its banks and was flowing deep into the streets closest to it. But Victor's family did not live on one of those streets. From their house, they could not see the water. Hidden to his eyes, the water was still coming, slowly, in ripples, gaining ground ever so slightly. The flood was still out of sight, when the two of them went to bed that night. And so by the time I woke up the next morning, just just 50 meters away from my house. I mean, like, when you woke up this morning and you oh, guys... Oh, parking. Oh, like, my father had gone to call a truck. So the truck just came and we just started parking immediately. Packing everything in the packing house. Everything. By the time we packed the whole day, by the time we were packing the final, moving the final distance, we were already stepping into, into water. water. Like, the water was, was already ankle deep. Into the water by the time we're moving the last things out of the house. When when you guys started packing that day, did you know that you never did you go back to your house? No, never. Did you guys realize that you were packing away from your no. home? No. We thought oh in a couple of days we'll come back. It was two weeks before Victor and his father would return to their home in a boat to find only the roof. 
they squatted with family for a few days and soon moved to a different house in a different part of town, leaving all their neighbors without ever saying goodbye. It was chaotic. Everybody was trying to move, actually. So it was, it was like a, we're too traumatized to have any sort of emotional goodbyes. You understand? You're, mm-hmm. you're moving from your house and you look across the road and you see your best friend's family also mm-hmm. trying to move. So it's like, at that point, you're a survivor. Victor's family was born of the lucky ones. They could afford to move and find lasting safety. Some other families did not have the same privilege. Like Victor, they left their homes when the flood came. But instead of finding safer homes, they were moved to displacement camps where they stayed for the months it took the water to recede. And they have been doing this year after year since that first incident. Because you've like, you, you've, you've spoken about it being just like now a, like a part of life that the viva... Yeah, just because as I turn and the other come happen every year. In 2012, oblivious to 15-year-old Mo watching from his window, oblivious to Victor and his family, to the whole country, something was changing. In Nigeria, where the rain comes in May and leaves in October, flooding in certain parts of the country became a yearly occurrence. When it came, it took things, people's homes, livelihoods, and security. Sometimes, it took the people too. What was meant to be a one-off disaster became a part of life. And in a place like this, where the people depend on the river, they don't have the privilege of living. The only option is to adapt. So, my question now is this. What does it mean to adapt to loss? To answer this question, I took a trip to Lokoja, where Victor and his family once lived. It's May 2023, and the rainy season has slowly begun to announce itself. It rained the morning I arrived in Lokoja. According to the people I spoke to, it's been raining for the past three days. The rain is late this year, but over the next couple of months, it will get heavier. Soon enough, the floods will return. The people living here know this. Tell me your name first. Uh, my name is Ahmed Omar. Mm. I am an indigenous of this community and the youth leader of this community called Ebo community in Adankolo. Mm-hmm. Under Lokoja local government, the district. Um, the issue of flood is a yearly occurrence. Mm-hmm. Yearly. It will come this year. <laughs> it will. But how do we prevent it? That's the voice of Ahmed Omar, a community leader in Lokoja. He is asking the question on everybody's mind. Can we prevent this? Within this question lies others, like why is this happening now? And why has the flooding become such a persistent problem? The short answer is that we are seeing higher volumes of rainfall across the board in Nigeria. The general consensus is that climate change is the cause of this increased rainfall. This increase is most notable in the north, where rainfall was up by more than 150% last year. Increased rainfall is bad enough by itself. 
Certain urban areas like Lagos, the most populous city in Nigeria, have the only other ingredients necessary for a flooding disaster poor drainage and waste management systems. Lagos Island, densely populated, is one of such areas bearing the brunt of the rainfall, with streets around the Dumago, Jankara, Ojogiwa, among others, retaining the water for months. Then there are the communities in the south, where the river Ninja empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Here, higher rainfall meets rising sea levels along the coast. The resulting flood is disastrous, putting entire communities at risk of extinction. Finally, we have the east, north, and central parts of Nigeria. The longest rivers in the country are situated here. The river Niger flows in from the northwest, and the river Benue from the northeast. The country experiences seasonal flooding along these two main rivers every year, but on a far smaller scale. It's a different story this time. Both rivers meet here in Lokoja, Kogi State. There's almost half of the fence. This one fence, I got collapsed during the flood. These are houses that people were even staying that collapsed. During my visit to Lokoja, I walked through Adankolo, where it is not immediately obvious that most of these buildings were completely underwater less than a year ago. There are a few telltale signs that give it away. The rubble remains of collapsed houses is one. Watermarks on the houses that survived is another. Wait, this, this is your house? Your brother? I met up with Abubakri Sadiq a farmer and fisherman who has lived here in Adankolo for as long as he can remember. Because his livelihood is so attached to the river, he has built his house about 200 meters away from it. We are looking over the river when I sit down with him, under a shed, to talk about his experience over the past 10 years. And now it has changed his relationship with the place he calls home. We speak in pidgin English, a Nigerian Creole version of English. Like this house, they don't talk to you. What are they coming again? Ah, really? Now, don't get the rest of mine now. I said to you, don't get the rest of mine. Even this morning, no, you won't talk the matter. Mm. This morning, me and this, uh, they were wolves dying. Mm. Don't talk this matter. I say, oh, oh God. He says, this is what I will come. Oh, no, no, you go go feed you. Mm. I say, talk to me, go feed. Help us now. No, you go experience. I said, this morning, no, you won't talk to you. Why you show this water? This morning, like yeah. this? Yeah, I said to God. From where we sit, a stone's throw away from the river. Abubakri shows me the part of the water when it starts to overflow its bank. He starts by mapping out the area closest to the river. He points at a barren piece of land where he says a church used to stand. All that's left now is the altar. Church, church be stand for that place. Before, even at the altar, now they see the cement, so where the man, the pastor, they stand. There are many stories like this of ghost houses built before the flooding problem. Where we've been sitting for our interview, Abubakri shows me the outline of what used to be a three-bedroom house. It's unrecognizable to me as such, until he points out on the ground what used to be the foundation blocks. Then, 
we cross into the places where houses still stand, including his own. Although a few rooms are under construction following their collapse last year. Mm. Abu Bakri guides me through another 100 meters of affected houses. In reality, every single house in this area was affected by last year's flood, including Latifa Musa's. Latifa Musa whose house is at least 500 meters away from the river. According to Latifa, last year's flooding is the worst she has ever experienced, worse than the flooding of 2012. When the 2012 flood came, Latifa left her home out of fear, but the water did not actually enter her house. Last year, the flood not only displaced her family, but kept them away for three weeks. My house had this, so it pursued me. The water pursued me on about three weeks. I no come house. And they look, and they look my house. I no finish. I go go sit down for where I go. I go find another house. Now I rent one room. I I, I push myself. I they put my load there. All my my husband, my people, they go find another. When the flood comes, it doesn't only drive families out of their homes. It also divides them. In Latifa's case, all 11 members of her family found little places to squat all around the town. Meanwhile, Abu Bakri's wife and children were housed in a primary school that caused place as a displacement camp during the rainy season, while Abu Bakri sought a temporary home elsewhere. No one really talks about this part of flooding, how it breaks up families. Every year, come October, the news reports statistics. The number of people affected, acres of land destroyed, and millions of dollars in property lost. And behind these statistics are the lives of people like Latifa Musa. People who are unable to get a full night's rest out of fear that the water will come for them while they sleep. If you don't, they go, nobody. If you sleep, go back. If you sleep, small. You go wake, you can't look at maybe don't reach your domain. <laughs> now so now, nobody feel where you sleep, you go far. People like Abu Bakri, who are in a perpetual state of rebuilding. We still must build your house. We don't have any option. Now. People like the many Victor encountered in a displacement camp last year when he visited. People for whom losing their home has become a yearly experience. So now they have something interesting. They have cliques. They have cliques. Yes, in the town. Like, it's like, and these cliques hustle for food together when they share food, they look out for their own interests. And, and then you, when you talk to them, you realize that these people met in, in this camp like four years ago, five years ago. I very just met friends. So these people are now forming new communities in their temporary homes, bonded by their shared experience of loss. This is what it means when displacement becomes part of the calendar. It changes your life, not just once, but over and over again. It's been 10 years since Nigeria started facing regular flooding. Places like Kogi still don't have any real infrastructure in place to mitigate the flooding or to cater for the affected people. In the community I visited, Every year, a few classrooms of a school 
are converted into halls to house the displaced. Hundreds of people, mostly women and children, pack themselves into these classrooms and they wait. They are waiting for help. When the help comes from the government, it comes in the form of donated food. Food that these people then have to fight over. Abubakri doesn't stay in the camp with his family because he can't stand that kind of shame. Uh, two cup of uh, rice. What do you, you want to do? You want to us, we won't respect. They eat two four. Going to carry the fat on top of two mundomi. He can't stand the idea of not being able to provide for his family and being reduced to fighting for some cups of rice. This is not the help he wants. And if we're being honest, this is not the help he needs. Ahmed Umar, a community leader in Lokoja, told me of an NGO that just a couple of months before we spoke went around donating building materials to people in this community. USAID. Mm-hmm. They came to uh, uh, St. Clement. Mm-hmm. They were one that we are happy for. They gave us zinc, three bundles of zinc. They gave us 15 bags of cement. They gave us over 50 blocks of, uh, 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 of block. They gave us what small prayer they do to them? Ah, first we give you say just do your estimate. Abu Bakri was one of the beneficiaries of this act of kindness. When I met him, he had already used some of these materials in building his home. Give cement, give block, head pan, good barrel, chopper, digger, every. So I thought maybe. This is the help he needs. Then he confessed to me that if given the chance, he would move. After living here for so long, after starting a family here, he was ready to say goodbye to his home. He was ready to live somewhere he could have peace of mind. So maybe this is it. Maybe the help these people need is with relocating. I brought this hypothesis up with Ahmed and he reacted with the story. Back in 2012, when the floods first came, the Nigerian government at the time had moved to relocate the affected people. An estate was built and houses were allocated to the victims. It was one of those rare moments when the government seemed to actually take action. But the people that benefited from this that we awarded these houses and pieces of land. They sold that land, majority sold that land, majority put it on rent and come back to work. Are we helping the, the, the In case you missed that, Ahmed is telling me that many of the people who benefited from this scheme sold or rented out their houses and moved right back to their homes by the river, bringing us back to where we started, waiting for a lasting solution. Much has changed since 2012, when I watched the rain obliviously from my window, with every rainy season that washes by, more and more Nigerians become vulnerable to the devastating effects of seasonal flooding. There is a tension in the air every time it rains. Will the water come for us now? Or will we get another year? It's June as I put the final pieces of this story together. It's another rainy season. And we are waiting.
Hi folks, it's Shaylin again. Thank you so much for listening to Loss is on the Calendar by Mo Isu. That's all for this episode of Inherited. We'll return next week with an all new episode featuring another fantastic young climate storyteller. And keep a lookout this Friday for some BTS craft talk with Mo on his process, inspirations, and goals for the future. Sainam Asi for joining us for episode three. There is so much more in store for season three of Inherited. So make sure to tune in each Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Inherited is brought to you by YR Media, a national network of young journalists and artists creating content for this generation. We're distributed by Critical Frequency, a woman-run podcast network founded by journalists. The story, Loss is on the Calendar, featured in today's episode, was written, produced, voiced, and sound designed by Mo Isu an inherited season three storyteller. Special thanks to Fuad Loal and Jill Echeniku. I'm Shailen Martos, your season three host and producer. The co-creators and senior producers of Inherited are Georgia Wright and Jules Bradley. Our audio engineer is James Riley and our audio engineering fellow is Christian Romo. Dominique French and Nige Turner provided production support and our intern is Esther Omolola. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt from Critical Frequency. YR's Director of Podcasting is Sam Chu, and our Senior Director of Podcasting and Partnerships is Rebecca Martin. Original music for this episode created by these young musicians at YR Media, Christian Romo, Anders Knudstad, Noah Holt, Jacob Armenta, Chaz Whitley, Michael Diaz, Sean Luciano Galarza, and Jay Mejia Cuenza. Music direction by Oliver Cuya Rodriguez and Maya Drexler. Other music licensed from APM Music. Art for this episode created by YR's Marjorie Massacat. Art direction by Brigado Bautista. Michelle Rivera is our web designer. Project management from Eli Arberton. YR's creative director is Pedro Vega Jr. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Jasmine Burton, Siobhan Graham, Danielle Conley, and Kyra Kyles. Please throw us a rating or maybe even a review on the Apple Podcast app. It goes a long way towards getting these stories out there. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InheritedPod. If you want to learn more about our show and this season's cohort of storytellers, head to our website at yr.media slash inherited. Sainam Asi for listening and see you next Wednesday. Inherited is a critically acclaimed climate storytelling show made by, for, and about young people. It's a production of YR Media and distributed by Critical Frequency. For more information about Inherited, head to their website at yr.media slash inherited and follow them on socials at Inherited Pod. We'll be back next week with another episode in our series on the real free speech threat. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.